0: A Bible reading is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verses 1 to 8.
1: There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens.
0: A time to be born and a time to die.
1: A time to plant and a time to uproot.
0: A time to kill and a time to heal.
1: A time to tear down and a time to build.
0: A time to weep and a time to laugh.
1: A time to mourn and a time for peace
0: this is god's words so let's pray together shall we god of all seasons in your pattern of things there is a time for keeping and a time for losing a time for building up and a time for pulling down
1: as we begin this new year and begin the journey from the cradle towards the cross help us to discern in our lives what we must lay down and what we must take up, what we must end and what we must begin.
0: Give us grace to lead a disciplined life in glad faithfulness and with the joy that comes from a closer walk with Christ.
2: Amen. These words, you'll have heard them, I guess. Let's go. Be quick. Chop, chop. Come on. Get a move on. Look lively, shake a leg, buck up, look sharp, get your skates on, shift, move faster, speed up, move it, get moving, get cracking, step on it, get a wiggle on, make it snappy, step on the gas, come along, make haste, be quick about it, put your foot down, are all ways of saying, hurry up, hurry up. Now do you say those words, or are they said to you? Now in our home, I am afraid I am the undisputed king of the hurry up. Uh, there's nothing to be proud about it, but I know that those words come out of my lips more often than they should. Hurry up. Now, the person who you, who says that to you, just think about it. It could be your husband. It could be your mum or your dad. It could be your kids. Come on, Dad. It could be your boss. Come on. It could be the customers, hurry up, or it could be your church leaders. We live in a world where people say those words to us. Now you know what one of these is, don't you? It's a stiletto heel, yeah. And um, in that little bit there, it's reckoned that there are that that the pressure on the stiletto heel is sixteen hundred. Pounds per square inch. Now, if you pump your bike tyres up really hard, you get to about ninety. Uh, when someone treads on that bit of that, it's sixteen hundred psi. The person who's saying "hurry up" to you, it's like the stiletto heel. But above them, as it were, is a whole culture telling us to hurry up. It's not just the person who says "hurry up" to you—the boss, the customer, the church leader, the schoolmaster, the headmistress the nurse, the, the spouse, it, it, they are, as it were, that bit, the sharp end. But, but it's not just because of them. We, we live in a culture where so many things make us busy. You think of information, just how much stuff pours out. Cambridge University Library gets 100,000 books and uh, magazines a year. And in those magazines there are tens of thousands of articles. I, I did some work on this that uh, two years ago you know uh, blogs there were 136 million blogs two years later it's over 300 million blogs in a month it does in two years it's reckoned in uh 2010 there were like what two zeta of big data out there zeta i haven't got a clue uh mr glenville at the back you all know won't you but it's a it, it's 2025. It's reckoned that two is going to go up to 165 zettabytes of information being processed every year. This phenomenal growth in what we call the info culture. So much data being processed all the time. You, like, what bits of it do you keep up with, alongside the data, is the tech. Uh, Martin, brilliant this morning, wasn't it? So helpful realising, oh, what if we didn't have the tech? But but the tech brings with it a cost, and the cost is this thing goes ping, doesn't it? It used to be said years ago that, uh, you know, uh, at the family meal table, take the phone off the hook. Because you could always know the person, the, the, the moment the phone went, you know, the, the frenetic person in the family would go for a phone. But now it's no longer the phone ringing, it's, it's this going off in your pocket, or ping. And you know how many people just find this mesmerizing. Whatever you're doing, whatever you are doing, this wins. And that's how tech is, isn't it? And it's so helpful, it's so useful, but it's incredibly intrusive. Tech has speeded our world up. Uh, People look at these hundreds and hundreds of times a day. Uh, They've done tests on it. People have no idea how many times. They just quick look, glance at the phone. I thought, well, maybe 50 add a naught, add a naught. Tech has speeded life up. Uh, Work has changed, hasn't it? A couple of hundred years ago, uh, we would have been up with the dawn and in bed with the dark. Long summer days, work hard long days. Short winter days, well, not a lot of work to do. During the winter, you just hope you've got enough logs in to keep warm and enough food in To get through the winter but it slowed you down the agricultural rhythms of life meant that you had busy periods harvest was phonetic but then it would it would slow down but that's we've had the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution now the industrial revolution brought a change and it It brought nine till five or if you like seven till six whatever the the hours were they were clock time rather than rise up with a lark time go to bed with the sun time it's now a clock and machines but we are no longer in the industrial revolution we're now a service economy so when do you work when you serve where you serve when your customers want serving so instead of now being nine till five who who works nine till five or even seven till seven if you commute now it's people say well you know my customers want food when they're not at their work but I'm at my work if you work in in, the, in shops, if you work in providing services, in the emergency services, in the caring services, uh, if you're just in a, a company which fixes things, you basically, work has changed again. You don't now go to the factory and clock in. You just have to be at the end of a phone all the time. And then now, of course, we've now moved from agricultural to industrial to service to Info, the, the, the world of keeping abreast of what's happening around the world. That's a 24 7, 365. The, the stock exchanges are open around the world the whole time. And, and you have to keep abreast of that, the, the technological changes. And you know that countries spy on countries, and you have to keep abreast. And it's so fast moving. The research frontier's already miles ahead. That's the kind of world of work that's created a busy world. It gives us choices, which is a lovely thing. I, um, I've had two McDonald's in a year. That's, that's not bad, is it? I mean, all this, but I had one yesterday, and I had to order a Happy Meal. I never ordered a Happy Meal before, but I was with someone who wanted a Happy Meal. Well, it bewildered me. I never ordered a Happy Meal. It's normally straightforward, you know, quarter pound of Big Mac, or a Big and Tasty, as it was just. But it was this Happy Meal. She said, do you want it with this? What's that? And it went on and on. Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want? And I was looking at the little. What do you want? And I. And I said, oh, I don't know. And she said, oh, I'll just put it in. And that was just a happy meal at a McDonald's. You, you know, choice everywhere can completely confound you. When you go on holiday, you book it online. What do you do? You go on TripAdvisor. How many TripAdvisor things do you always want to read? Like it's got two stars or one. You know, I want to read that first. Because I really want to know the worst. But then you read that you like, oh, I better read one or two of the good ones. And they're like, oh, these biased people? Are they family relatives who have been paid to say that? Uh, you can spend hours just looking up what other people think of places you might not even go to. It goes on and on, doesn't it? Choice is wonderful but bewildering. We live in a world full of beliefs, myths, if almost you can call it that. We're, we're, we're in a culture that you can have it all. And we want it all. And we want to cram things into our lives and we, we live with a one life horizon, don't we? We kind of like with only one go around the merry-go-round, enjoy as much as you can. I've been reading Captain Tom. Somebody gave me a book, Captain Tom's, and It's lovely. Uh, it really is. Delightful read. But in his 90s, he took himself to Nepal on his own because he wanted to see Everest before he finally left this merry-go-round and he got in an aeroplane, took him up over at Everest in his 90s. and You can imagine maybe like, well, if Captain Tom did it, I better do that. That's the kind of world we live in. There's a there's a new fear out there called FOMO, fear of missing out. And you read what other people, oh, that's the thing to do then, isn't it? And you look at these so-called bucket lists and they're getting ever longer. And we're beginning to worry, oh, I'm, I'm getting behind on the, the bucket. That's the culture we live in and we go, well, we can't do everything, but we feel as if we want to. And even as Christians, we want to be good at what we did. Uh, as a bit of light relief uh, over the holidays, I read a book, uh, French Children Don't Throw Food. It's, it's just how French children are brought up. And I they remember, I was, oh, what a wretched parent I was. Oh, that's, that's why our kids threw food. Oh, I should have done it differently. Well, if you start on that line, how to be a good parent, let me tell you, there's a lot of stuff you can read. You're going to have amazing guilt trips for years and years and years. Even as grandparents, you think, well, we've got another chance to get it right or wrong again. You know, that kind of thing. You want to be a good parent. You want to be a good citizen. Well, what are you going to get involved in? To be a good citizen. You want to be a good spouse you want to be a good church member what am i going to get involved in there's so much i could even defining the good in different areas of our life and none of us will say oh no i want to be bad i want to be wicked we want to be good but then that leaves us with a sense of burden in all these areas and just finding out what the good parent looks like what the good church member looks like what the good citizen of the uk looks like Well, that will wear you out. You add it all up. No wonder the pressure of the person saying, hurry up. There's a lot of weight. There's a lot of cultural weight above them, isn't there? There's a lot of a merry-go-round feeling in our culture that says, come on. There's so much to do. And if you add in that phrase, for the Lord, you can even make it worse. Because ministers quite capable of adding on extra pressure and making it even more pressurised because it's now for the Lord Jesus, you know, you should be doing this. So these are huge pressures, our culture. That, that's that's what's squeezing us. That's what, those things, and you could think of many more pressures that are squeezing us. And what does it make us feel like when we're under these pressures? How do you feel? Well, there was two cardiologists. Notice that, people who were dealing with folks who had heart problems. Uh, Friedman and Rosenman were treating people, coming to them with heart problems, noticing that these people had this kind of frenetic sense of urgency. Now, they were picking up dealing with heart, but they were picking up a wider thing. And they, co- they coined the phrase, hurry, sickness... Hurry sickness. Let me tell you about hurry sickness. This is from the, uh, the journal Psychology Today. Hurry sickness is a general feeling of discomfort or unease whose exact cause is difficult to identify in which a person feels chronically short of time and sen- ten- tends to perform many tasks faster and to get flustered when are encountering any kind of delay. Another uh, author put it like this. It's a continuous struggle, unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. So it's not just doing things, it's experiencing things, being part of something. It's not just what I, I'm busy, but I want to be connected. That's what leads to this unease. Uh, And one person puts this, uh, one of the great signs is you're getting flustered by any sign of a hold-up. Any sign of a hold-up and you're getting flustered. How else can you see? What does it make you feel like? Well, I think the number one sign is irritability and all those words like that. Impatience, frustration, maybe anxiety, sort of unhappiness tiredness always tired you don't feel you sleep that well you wish you were an agricultural worker 300 years ago and were absolutely knackered at the end of a long day in the fields because you just go boof, but you never go boof anymore because your mind's whirring you feel disconnected everything feels superficial hi how are you good how are you you're not kind of like Don't don't any of you tell me really how you feel because I haven't got the time to really go deep. I just, hi, 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 hi. That kind of, and you feel that in yourself. You feel you're superficially a member of the community of Kempston or Bedford. You're superficially sort of connected to your kids' school and their teachers. You're superficially maybe connected to the church. You're superficially present with the family. And of course, you might find yourself drawn to distractions you might notice that in the midst of all this hurry 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 which is kind of you know the unease within that you don't quite know where it's all coming from you're kind of like can I find something to slow me down it might be late night drink it might be late night telly it might be glued to this for far too long it might be something far darker far more addictive far more destructive but you feel as if you need it because the pressure over here means you've got to find some outlet. Those are the signs of hurry sickness. Any of them resonate with you? Well, what we're going to try and do in this short series, and that's, that's by way of introducing the whole series, we're going to look at these four practices. Can we really eliminate hurry? Uh, Mark uh, John Comer, James Comer wrote this book. Uh, Ruthless elimination of hurry. Can we really ruthlessly eliminate hurry? Now, here's the problem. We don't want to define hurry as if it's like a first world problem. You know, like, oh no, they've run out of guacamole at Waitrose today. You know, that first world problem. We don't want hurry sickness to be a first world problem. Oh dear, woe is us. We're so busy. When there are people who would, you know, wish they had shelter and they wish they had warmth and they wish they had food and they wish they had health service and they wish they had you know the things that we enjoy and take for granted we don't want hurry sickness to be a a kind of a first world problem and we don't want a solution to be a kind of john boy uh, some of you remember the waltons some of you might know the waltons from a long time ago it was like american country family idyll and there was the sort of dad and there was john boy who was a sort of you know, the, the young boy is sort of, you know, it was just and it was just like American country idyllic life or rural Britain years ago. And you feel as oh, if only we could get back to that lovely John Boy, everybody loves each other, and you know, and even when tragedy goes wrong, it's not too bad. We all come through it, we all love each other all the time, and you know, and just life just took its course and we all kind of had a good time and we all happy ever after. We don't want a mythological past that never existed anyway as our solution. As if we only could wind the clock back and pretend we were all country bumpkins in Bedfordshire 300 years ago. And life was nice. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. So we don't, let's go back to a life that didn't exist. So the solution to the problem mustn't be, define the problem as a first world problem. No, it's a real issue, not a first world problem. We're not drama queens when we say... This busy, busy, busy thing is a real issue, but we don't want a solution that's like... Well, uh, some of you all know the phrase beads and sandals, what we call hippie culture. The hippies were, let's just chill out, man. Let's just drop out of society. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. Let's do our own thing in our own time. That's not going to help. The hippie culture was just an escapism from reality. We need answers that really help us. And we're gonna look at these four practices that have had a time-tested, time-honored way of helping Christians down through the ages under the different kinds of stresses that different Christians have felt at different times. We are in a busy, busy, info-connected, fast-paced world. It's different from our forefathers. They lived in a world where disease could take whole communities off. I mean, it may, the Black Death makes COVID look like, you know, minor problem. The Black Death killed possibly half of, third, certainly a third of all people in Britain in, within 18 months. You, you, you imagine that. They they had different problems. How do we cope? So these are the four. Solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, slowing, as Simon said. Now, we'll look at solitude uh, this evening. We're going to start with this phrase. How do we... How do we build some kind of solitude? What kind of solitude are we talking about? Well, that phrase Jesus uttered, follow me. Now, all four Gospels, they start with the same pattern. All four of them. They're very different in some ways, but they all start with the same pattern. What we find as Jesus begins his ministry is his baptism, where he commits himself to rescuing us. That's what the baptism is all about. And then the testing where Jesus is tested, are you really serious about this? And he has an assault by God's great enemy, the devil, to try and dissuade him from the commitment he's made to to rescue us. Then you get an announcement of the gospel, Mark's gospel. Repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus says. They're his first words, the gospel. But the gospel leads to the formation of disciples. So Jesus commits himself to our rescue. He's tested, are you serious about this? Yes, he is. Then the announcement of the good news, and then the formation of disciples. And what are the words for disciples? Well, the word is follow me. You look it up in all the gospels. In fact, almost the first words Jesus says in John's gospel is come, come and see. Follow me. They're the early words follow me. Not just listen to me, but follow what I do. Now, some of what Jesus did is unique, but some of it is a pattern. Paul the Apostle said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And in this, Jesus gives us an example. We've been working through Mark's Gospel, haven't we, these last few weeks. And we find not only was Jesus alone in the wilderness, but not long after, as he begins his ministry. Mark 1.12 is in the wilderness, but Mark 1.35, he got up early in the morning, got on his own and prayed to his Father in heaven alone. Just a few weeks ago, when we were looking at that great miracle of Jesus walking on the water, the context was Jesus sending the disciples away so that he could get on his own and pray to his Father on his own. Jesus shows us a deliberate practice of getting on your own with God. In fact, when he tells us how to pray, don't pray like the people who love praying to be seen to be praying. Plenty of religious people do that. But you get alone with your father in secret. In fact, he says even close the door. Make it deliberate. Close the door. Get alone. And your father who sees what is done in secret, get alone with your father. Solitude is not take a long walk on your own. Solitude is not like, oh, Jenny, would you mind going shopping for a few hours so I can just be on my own to do my own thing? You know how some of us love that. We love that kind of solitude. Like, great, the kids are going out. The wife's going out great i'm on my own that's not the solitude jesus is talking about it's not the solitude he's, pra- he's practicing getting on my own with my father in heaven it's getting alone with god now one way of thinking about this that might help you is, is this little phrase get getting gear uh, there's this a book very helpfully called the five gears You can online it. You don't have to read the whole book. You can get the gist of it. The idea is the car's got gears. Some of you have only driven automatics. I know that's a revelation to you. But cars cars used to have, sometimes still do have, manual gears. So fifth is when you're cruising. In fact, if you've got a posh car, you've got even six, haven't you, some of you? You're cruising along. you know, almost, you know, just loving it. Fourth is busy gear. You know, you're keeping your eye out because there's lots and lots happening. Uh, fourth is when you're tasking. It could be you at school uh, and you try to follow the teacher and muck about with your friend all at the same time. Uh, you, you, you know, you're, you're at home. You're kind of like, OK, uh, the, the, the batter pudding's got to go in. Uh, the, the bread sauce has got to come off. And I've got to close the back door because of gale. But, you know, you're multitasking. It you, you can be at work. You, you're answering emails, phone calls. You, you, you're trying to get a thing done. You're multitasking, fourth gear. Third gear is basically fun, social, food. Second gear is intimate, sharing what's on your heart. And first gear is replenishment, on your own, getting started. Uh, Reverse is an apology. It may be, I've sinned, will you forgive me? Or it may be, I messed up, I'm sorry, okay? Some things that you're sorry about, they're not sinful. They're just like, oh, yeah, I I could have done it differently. Okay, I'll go back and do it differently next time. That's not I was wrong and sinned. Will you forgive me? It's just apologies, really important. Now, here's the thing. What gear do you start a car in? Well, you start it if you've got a flat battery in second with a load of mate's pushing you. But that's not how cars are designed to start. Cars are designed to start with ignition on in first. If you try and start a car in fourth, it'll chug. It'll probably stop. You might, if you're absolutely brilliant, get it going in second just on your own, but it's tough. They're designed to start in first. What gear are human beings designed to start in? Well, they're designed. You need to become what we call a self starter. You're designed to start your day. You're designed to start getting that energy into your life with you and God. Our forefathers used to call it the quiet time. They'd say, read a bit of God's word and speak to God. You hear from God as you read his word and you speak to him. You, you may, uh, one group, you say, seven minutes with God. You'd uh, read the Bible for two minutes, think about it for a minute, Write ideas down for a minute, and then you speak back to God for two minutes. It's just a, a rhythm of "get alone with God. Start with God. Find replenishment with God. Now, now some people find that replenishment, getting alone with God by going for a walk and talking to their heavenly Father. Uh, one of my friends, he swims and talks to his heavenly Father. He just finds that when so he, he's not distracted at all when he's swimming. Whatever it is with you, but it is get alone with God and get replenished with god now why that language is helpful is because you can ask one another what gear are you in dear because too often we're in fourth when we should be in second and you know again the car doesn't work too well if you if you should be in second and you are in fourth and you'll know that because if this thing When you should be sharing your heart with your loved one, and then the intimate is is people very very close to you. Normally, it would be your family. It might be you, your your spouse, your kids. You're talking about some. I'm worried about this, or I've got that on my mind. And would you pray about that? And if this goes off, and oh, hold on, sorry, sorry, I've got. You realise you're still in fourth. When you should be in second, you need to know what gear you're in. Now, fourth is a good gear, and most of, of our working lives, we're in fourth. But we need to say, do you know what? We're now into third. We're going to have a meal together and we're just going to ban this we're not we're not at work we're not in busy busy world now and then we'll get into second and i need i i always need to be in first i need i need to get in first now i know in busy life especially when you've got little children to start in first on, on the you know they wake up what i know four half four five sometimes for you to say, oh, I've got to get, get alone with God first before I deal with my crying, hungry baby, that's unrealistic. But for many of us, to build in the rhythm of, look, early in my day, early in my day, somewhere I want to try and speak to my father. And hear from him, hear from his word and speak to him. That's, that's first gear. Follow me, Jesus said, get in first but also build in those big rocks. You, you may have come across this before the parable of the stone water jars. Guy on a stage, great big water jars, and he asked his assistants, they put some big rocks in, and he says to the audience, are the stone jars full? And they go, Ooh, yeah, and he goes, no. And they said, come on, bring in the pebbles. And they brought in some pebbles and they filled up the jars. Are the stone water jars full? And the audience by this time said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, no, no, bring in some sand. And they put in the sand. Are they full? And the audience, oh, I don't know, it looks a bit tricky. Well, bring in the water, and they put some water in. By this time, he says, what what do you think now? And they said, they are full now. What is the lesson of the parable of the water jars? And one person said, however busy you are in life, you can always squeeze in something else. He said, no, that is not the lesson. The lesson is, unless you get the big rocks in first, you can never get them in later. And that's what Jesus is teaching us when he says, follow me. We've seen Jesus say that to people, and the next thing we almost find Jesus doing, we can't heal like he healed, but we can pray like he prayed. We can get alone with God the Father. It's one of the big rocks of our lives. It's one of the most significant habits you can get. If you can get that habit in, the earlier the better. And if you can't get in in early, well, you could get rid of a few pebbles and get that big rock in. Because remember, at the end of the day, you're pleasing an audience of one. That's what Jesus said, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you publicly. He's overjoyed when you want to just be with him. That's one of the things we found how hard this Christmas, isn't it? We haven't been with the people we love. And we've done it on phones, we've done it on Zooms, we've done it over and hi, and we've perhaps gone out for the odd walk socially distanced and all the rest of it but it's not the same as just being with and this is the astonishing your father in heaven loves to be with you he's not setting this up as like here's another thing to do get alone with me it's like i love you i just love being with you i know you go well you, you can't really you can't i mean come on it's just the minister at the front conning me and god the father in heaven says no he's not conning you i love being with you I love it when it's just you and me. And I love it when you tell me what's on your heart. I know what's on your heart, but I love to hear it from you. And you know that because you love to hear it from your kids or your grandkids or your friends. or your. You know, if you're an honorary aunt, you love it when they say, Auntie, and they tell you something. And you already know it. You don't say, I already know that. What a stupid waste of my time. You go, oh, and, you, and sometimes you cry, doesn't it? When they really want to just come to you. And they seek you out. Sometimes between me and Jenny, it's it's granddad. And I go, oh, it's granddad. Not grandma this time. You see, that kind of thing. Well, can you believe the God of the universe is like that with you? This is not a religious practice you have to do to become a better Christian. It's the warm heart of a heavenly father says, I want to grow a relationship with you. And the basis of this relationship is not you being a goody, goody, squeaky clean two-shoes, you know, doing it. It's the gospel it's the good news of Jesus Jesus has opened up a new and living way and we can draw near to God with a full heart full assurance of our faith we don't need to have any doubts God the father loves me uh, and he loves me so much he wants me to be with him just with him and if I could see it he's putting his arms around me and say my dear child this is one of the most precious times Of my day. I love it when you talk to me like this. That's what Jesus knew. He knew intimacy with his father. Not duty, but intimacy. And we need to grow that for ourselves. So solitude was not just like another thing to do on the tick list, but a means of growing a heart that begins to feel God's heart more. So that when I begin to do the rest of my, what gear am I in now? I felt my father's heart, I felt his loves, I felt his burdens, I felt his passions, I felt his concerns and his priorities and they're becoming mine and so I am following my saviour and I'm beginning to let his will control my busyness more than letting the pressure of the stiletto heel control my busyness. Well, as we look at these four practices these next few weeks, may God encourage you. To feel something of his heart as you draw near through his son Jesus.